From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Alec Baldwin, an anti-gun fanatic with anger issues, shoots and kills his cinematographer on the set of a movie. The Supreme Court hears a case on concealed carry in New York, and Cincinnati loses in court and pays us more than $235,000 in legal fees. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek. Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by attorney and gun law expert Sean Maloney. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dean. It's good to be back. Well, Sean, I've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while, and you kept saying that you had lost your voice. What happened? What were you doing? I was on Lake Powell in Utah on a houseboat, and for four or five days, my friends were begging me to sleep on top of the boat because the sky is so clear there and there's no lights and you can truly see the Milky Way and things better than you ever could. Well, it's we're in the desert on the water, so it goes from 80 degrees to 30 degrees. And, and obviously, you know me and I don't have a thick head of hair. So when my head was sticking out of the sleeping bag, I caught a cold and my voice was literally gone for almost two weeks. So you were sleeping outside? Yes. What? One night. So what was the temperature? Uh, I was probably got down to about 41 or 42 that night. In a sleeping bag, I was warm except for my head. You said you don't have a thick head of hair. I, I'm not no. sure that you need the, the modifier thick. There, there's really nothing there at all. I, no, I, hate nothing to, there. I hate to break it to you. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think the, the biggest hump of hair I really have, besides my beard, uh, on a consistent basis are my eyebrows. Now, do you, do you shave your head or you just naturally bald? Every morning. I shave it. Wow. I decided, Dean, that uh, I was going getting my hair cut, and I had less and less hair to get it cut. And one day I went to the barber shop, which was always a social event. Anyhow, my barber had eight barbers that had been there forever, so it was always fun to go to. And then finally one day I said, just shave it all off. And that was the last day I ever went to my barber. And I've been shaving it every morning ever since. Yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't shaved it all off, but I understand, you know, not wanting to mess with it. Mine is pretty short now. In fact, I, I go about every two weeks. I used to go every five weeks. You got that, so now, you got that military style, the tight Princeton, it looks like. Well, I get it as short as I can get it. My hair is weird. When it grows out, it has bizarre curls, not like attractive curls, but like in all the wrong places. So I look like a serial killer or something. It, it's not a good look. Persistent bedhead? Well, not when I have it short. Yeah, I have a friend that has the same problem. He has a colic, and when it gets longer it looks like he has a bedhead so he always has to keep it short yeah no i saw you know combs and brushes weren't doing it and i just told my barber you know what just cut it as far as you can cut it without making me look like that sean maloney guy i have some um i have some uh, electric shavers from from barbers uh, from barbers and put a gauge on it and you can just do it yourself dean oh so you're not using like the an actual uh, razor and a strap and and all of that no, I just use one of those five-blader razors, Gillette, and soap it every morning. I have a little beaver tail, and 
put the soap on the head and start shaving. Now, it's about do, probably two minutes. Do barbers down there shave anymore? Because uh, they used to shave in my area, then they stopped, and I think it was some sort of a health thing or regulation thing. They just well, they, it's it's tough to find true barbers because true barbers are actually better trained to use those razors and, and the straight razor and things like that. Most of the hair salons don't have barbers anymore. They they're, they just cut hair, and so they don't shave. But most of the barbers down here that are true barbers still get the strap and a straight razor out. Ah. Yeah, I mean, I went from barber to barber, and it was nice occasionally to get an actual shave because there's uh-huh. nothing there's nothing better than a real yeah. shave with a real razor when they know what they're doing. Yep. But nobody in this area does it anymore. Yeah, I think it's a lost art. Yeah. Well, Sean, I wanted to have you on because you're the legal expert, and there's a lot of legal stuff going on. So I thought, well, let's get Sean on. Let's let's talk law stuff. One of the first things, and we're reading about this virtually every day now, we're seeing it on the news, is this Alec Baldwin shooting story. Apparently, he's shooting a film. It's a Western. It's called Rust. And the story is he was handling a gun, rehearsing some move that he was making, unholstering it, whatever he was doing. And it went off, went off. I'm doing air quotes here. And it killed the cinematographer, and it injured the director. Now, this case keeps developing, so we don't know exactly what happened. But it sounds like there were live rounds on the set. Sounds like there were obviously live rounds in the gun. And that three people handled the gun, the armorer, the assistant director, and Baldwin. And none of them claim to have noticed live rounds in the gun. They don't know where they say they don't know where the live rounds came from. In fact, the armorer recently came out with a statement saying that she's thinking that it was sabotage. Somebody somebody put live rounds on the set or mixed it, mixed it in with all the other rounds in order to purposely sabotage the set. I think she's getting scared. She's 24 years mm-hmm. old. She's inexperienced. She's probably figuring charges are going to be brought because the you know the buck stops with her. Well, Sean, what kind of charges could she be facing? Everything probably from, well, depending upon what the facts show, uh, felonious assault, uh, involuntary manslaughter, manslaughter. Again, it just depends on the facts of the case and who knew what and when. And if you think about anybody who handled that firearm and didn't check it physically themselves to determine if, in fact, it was loaded or unloaded, in my mind, is negligent. It's pure negligence. They didn't follow any of the rules of safe gun handling. And like you mentioned, Dean, the, the facts keep trickling out. And the more we hear, the more bizarre it gets and, and the less sense it all makes. And so it'll be interesting to find out what the final truth is, because to have that many people handle a firearm and not check it, number one, to have live ammunition on a movie set where, you know, after Bruce Lee's son was killed much the same way, never should have happened. You have a, a quote-unquote armor who is supposed to the responsibility is is to keep people safe. Alec Baldwin, who's who's pointing a gun at another individual and pulling the trigger, uh, or not pulling the trigger and uh, improperly drawing the gun from from a holster and having it go off, like you said, it was a western. So it'd be interesting to find out was it a single action handgun, and if it was, then the only th- way that fires is if he pulls the hammer back and then pulls the trigger. So there's, like I said, there's a lot of questions, a lot of negligence to go around. And unfortunately, you know, we, we have somebody's dead. And if, um, if 
Alec Baldwin would have taken some time to take an NRA basic pistol course instead of trying to, to shut the doors of the NRA and constantly attacking the NRA, this never would have happened because he would have known the rules of safe gun handling. And it's totally bizarre that he doesn't already. After all the, the times he handled firearms in movies, none of this would have happened. Yeah, multiple things have to go wrong before something like this happens. You know, that that's why the rules are written the way they are. You keep your finger off the trigger and you don't point it at someone and you, you know, keep the gun unloaded until you're mm -hmm. ready to use it and, and, and. So obviously multiple things happen. These were cascading failures and multiple people, maybe they're not legally liable, but they're responsible or they should be. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. My overall take is that these people just didn't know what they were doing. Baldwin obviously had a finger on the trigger. Maybe he pulled the hammer back as well. He was pointing the gun when it fired. It doesn't sound like anyone had any serious training. All the articles, basically, when people are coming out making statements, it's, well, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my job. Mm -hmm. So no one's taking responsibility. Well, and that's exactly it. Nobody's taking responsibility. And uh, it was a comedy of errors and comedy of negligence. Every, every step of the way, something was, was done wrong. And, and, and unfortunately, it ended in this kind of tragedy. And and some people are saying, well, you know, Baldwin, it wouldn't be his fault. It'd be the armor's fault. But Baldwin's one of the producers on the movie. And some of the stories are suggesting that they were trying to save money, that there, there was a tight budget, they had a tight time frame. And this armorer was 24 years old. This was only the second movie she'd worked on. And there seems to be some controversy about her past and how safe that she actually was. Now, a lot of that could just be rumors, but he could face charges too, right? As the, as the, as the decision maker, as the employer here, correct? Right. And, and I think she became an armor by osmosis because she got the job because her father was an armor. I didn't know anything about her training other than the fact that her father had been an armor on movie sets. So again, there's a, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more facts that come out and uh, none of them are going to be good. Uh, but, you know, it's a lesson to be learned. And unfortunately, Hollywood has a hard time learning lessons. Yeah. Someone's going to jail here. Someone's going to face some serious charges. Don't know who it is. But, uh, you know, the law aside, there's a lot of responsibility here to go mm -hmm. around. If three people handled the gun, three people should have checked the gun. There should have never been live rounds anywhere on that set. And, you know, the gun should have been locked up. The ammo should have been locked up. There should have been a lot more control. Mm -hmm. When you take a gun class, Sean, you're an instructor. When you have a, a class, if it's like a classroom setting, generally the rule is you have no live ammo even in that class. Yeah, that's, that's the rules, uh, NRA rules as an instructor. During the class, there is no live ammunition. Everything is out in, in their cars or in another room. And for that precise reason, because you're handling guns and just to make sure that accidents can't happen, not that they don't happen, but it's impossible. If there's no ammunition, you're going to have a cold classroom and you're going to be safe. So the other big thing that's uh, going on right now, and, and we're recording this, we often record these podcasts on a Friday. So this is a Friday and just this Wednesday on November 3rd, 2021, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments in the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And for our listeners, you can download the audio and download a transcript at supremecourt.gov. It's about two hours long, and it's worth it because it's really interesting. Sean, just I, I'm, not, I'm not an attorney. 
Uh, I'm not the legal expert, but just based on what I heard, it sounds like there's a pretty good chance for a ruling supporting Second Amendment rights. What's your take after listening to that? Being a Second Amendment advocate, sometimes it's hard to stay objective, but I, I listen to oral arguments on a couple of different occasions, and I try to remain as objective as I possibly could. And I agree with you just from the questions from the bench that were being asked, uh, the statements and, and the way that the justices were arguing uh, their points while they're asking questions and uh, the responses that, that they were getting, I think indicates the fact that they're going to determine that failure to, to grant people a constitutional right to carry a firearm outside of the home is unconstitutional and impacts their Second Amendment rights. Now, a lot of the questions dealt with limits and time and place. So I think they're probably looking for a way when this opinion finally comes out to have the, uh, their quote unquote reasonable restrictions, uh, whether it's a giant stadium, as is mentioned several times, or Times Square with lots of people, we'll see how that comes out. But to me, places that New York State was arguing and the judges that probably aren't going to rule fair were arguing was the fact that where all the people are and where all the bad guys are, that's where you shouldn't have the guns. They, they use the example of the rural versus the urban area. And the good thing was that the justices, as they started asking questions, realized that, you know what, when you're out in the woods, how many muggins are there? Right. And, and just so if in case our listeners aren't familiar with what we're talking about here, this is um, a law that's about 108 years old in New York, and it requires anyone who's applying for an unrestricted license. They have restricted licenses where you can carry like to a range or in very particular circumstances. But if you want to license the way we have a license in Ohio, they call that an unrestricted license. And that allows you to carry a firearm outside the home, but you have to show proper cause. Right. And there has to be a particularized need and in, in whatever that need is. And unfortunately, what you and I and both and probably most of the listeners have, have read about are the particularized needs being voiced by men and women and they still get turned down. So they have the power uh, to determine who's going to have be able to exercise the constitutional right and who, who can't. You're exactly right. What is that particularized need? And why should I have to voice a specific need? Not just a, a general need that, hey, I live in a dangerous neighborhood. Crime, crime and homicides are, are rampant here. That's not good enough. You have to have something particular. And, uh, and that's a problem because it allows... Uh, New York City and New York State and the people that make the decision to make whatever decision they determine. And, and, and the majority of those decisions are anti-gun. Yeah. And let's just be honest. This law is really not about the state of New York. This is the city of New York, that they don't want guns. And just so that people understand how draconian the gun laws are there, you need a permit just to possess a gun in the state of New York. Ammo sales are restricted semi-auto rifles are restricted. There's no castle doctrine. Open carry is prohibited. Concealed carry licenses are may issue, but in practice, they're hardly ever issued. There's no recognition for out-of-state licenses. I mean, they just, they don't like guns. And this all comes from New York City. They don't want you carrying. Like you mentioned, the, all the different kinds of permits and unrestricted permit. Uh, I got a phone call from an individual that had recently moved to, to New York State, and they we're trying to figure out how they were allowed to, to take their gun physically to a range to practice. And their concern was that 
they had to be, they couldn't be one block, very one, one block or the other. If they got pulled over and they were in a direct line to the range, they didn't know what to do. And then they said, well, we want to go back to Pennsylvania where we're from. Are we allowed to take our guns out of our home and drive back home with our firearms? Questions that, of course, that, that I can't answer and probably nobody can, but that's just how restrictive they are. The draconian in their operation and, and actually uh, just I think it leaves total decision-making process up to the government as to whether you can exercise a constitutional right. And finally, I think that's what the issue came down to. Well, yeah, and, and just the way the licenses are issued, it's it's up to the issuing official. So if you're in New York City, you're unlikely to ever get a license unless you're rich or famous. But in the more rural areas like upstate New York, you probably are more likely to get a license, although even there it can be really difficult. That just shows you how it's not enforced equally. They, they don't have any standard. It's just up to whoever's doing it, whether they like you or not. Or, or whatever. So it, in, in my eyes, and, and, and I'm biased the same way you are, Sean, but in my eyes, it's clearly an infringement. They go too far. And it really is time to start looking at those New York laws. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it, it's a direct infringement upon your constitutional rights. And one, one thing that was interesting uh, in the or argument also is the judges, when they're taking a look at the history and, and the past, they started thinking, you know, wait a minute. Shouldn't we just be starting with Heller, which is a refreshing look at it? That's the that's the latest opinion and uh, and the decision that we have an individual right to to keep and bear arms. So instead of going back to the the 15 and 1600s, I said let's start with Heller, and uh, and so I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure what justice said that, but I thought that was an interesting statement. Well, the attorney that was making the argument for you know for our side of the case, his name is Paul Clement. I believe that's the way you pronounce mm-hmm. it, Paul Clement. And he was arguing a pretty simple, straightforward proposition that the Second Amendment enshrines the right not only to keep arms in the home, as uh, in what Heller found, mm-hmm. but also to bear arms outside the home for self-defense. It's it's both right. keep and bear. But the justices and, uh, you know, uh, those arguing on the other side of the case seem to have this idea that well, okay, you can carry, but not in populated areas. Right. And that just didn't make any sense. And, and you had mentioned this kind of funny moment where they were discussing this and Chief Justice Roberts asked the questions, well, how many muggings take place out in the forest? You know, and, and there was laughter. You could hear right. people in the courtroom laughing, but, you know, they weren't taking it a joke. They, they were serious that they were okay with you carrying in the woods. But they're not okay not with you carrying, right, like in Subway or where other people are. Right, right, exactly when we needed it. And what I thought was interesting, Dean, I'm not sure if you caught it or not. When you're listening to uh, the other side in New York City argue and make their argument and the anti-gun justices make their arguments, they came down to the same arguments that you and I have heard time and time again in the Columbus State House. You know, what if two people are watching at a sporting event and they get in an argument and they both have guns and they shoot each other? Well, that doesn't happen. And it's the same argument over and over and over again that, that we can't be trusted. And as soon as a firearm is brought into any situation, the worst is going to happen. And so, I, and again, which tells me when you start going to those emotional arguments, you really have nothing. And the New York State was trying to stretch awful hard to, uh, in the face of everything that all the briefs that were submitted and the, the justices' questions, to come up with a rationale. 
And in my view, they just couldn't come up with a rationale to to uh, justify the way the law had been operating for over 100 years in, in, in New York State and New York City. Well, Buckeye Firearms Association actually submitted a brief, and the topic of the brief, they didn't mention us by name in the oral arguments, but the topic came up, I think, eight or nine times. And ours was a kind of a technical brief, and it was dealing with a law called the Statute of Northampton in England. It's an old English law. It's about 700 years old, and it's actually been part of this debate because it was being quoted as saying that you can limit people carrying firearms in public. But what we were arguing that what it actually said was that, no, uh, that law was about carrying arms in public when you're in terror of the people. In other words, when you're out there, when you're a bad guy out there doing bad things with a gun, that it outlawed that. It did not outlaw ordinary people carrying guns for self-defense. So it was kind of a technical, wonky kind of uh, brief that we submitted. But it, it's at, at the core of the arguments that they were having when when they're discussing this. Because and there was one point where Justice Breyer actually came out and said that, you know, he said, you know, fine, you're carrying out in the woods, okay, but, you know, if you're going to carry, like, whatever kind of gun for whatever kind of reason, you're going to go out there, someone's going to get shot, and they're going to get killed. And so that, that's the argument, is that if you're carrying a gun, right. you're dangerous. And that's the same argument that that uh, fails to ever appear and ever happen if you think about a restaurant carry. Oh, there's going to be blood in the streets then. Uh uh, carrying automobiles, there's, there's going to be blood in the streets again. So it's interesting how the emotional argument comes to the forefront because really they don't have any facts to back things up. And um, the way the laws have been written and the way the laws have been enforced, you have 21 or 22 states with constitutional carry. Look at what's happening. You have over 40 states with concealed carry. Those problems don't exist. So again, because law-abiding gun owners are the good people and, and they act like responsible armed citizens, we can always point to the, the other states and where these things aren't happening. Well, you're looking at probably 19 million concealed carry holders. Now was the latest thing I had seen. 4.3 million guns sold during a part of last year. And where's all the blood? Where's all the accidental shootings? And, and the training is, being, is taking place. And certainly there's not a greater need to carry a firearm than in parts of New York City. But they try to say because that's a populated area, they seem to have been falling under the belief, well, there's more people, but there's more police there also, so you'll be all right. Yeah, they'll protect you. Yeah, that was a specific argument is you don't right. need a gun because there are a lot of people around and the police are going to protect you. And that flies in the face of evidence. I mean, people are where the crimes are. The fewer people, this is why a lot of people <clears throat> live in the country or in the suburbs, <clears throat> fewer people, less crime. Everyone knows that instinctively. So it's, and they know that too. This is a disingenuous argument. They're just wanting to throw up roadblocks. You know, if, if there's one thing that we know for sure is that no matter what the ruling is, New York is going to continue to screw with people on gun laws. And the other thing is we know that there are probably going to need to be other cases. That this one is not going to decide concealed carry for every circumstance because states like New York are going to continue to mess with people's rights. You're absolutely right, Dean, because if you look at uh, the Heller and his prodigy afterwards, there are still many states. I mean, Massachusetts, for example, their Massachusetts Supreme Court had to be slapped down by the United States Supreme Court and said, you have to enforce Heller. So you're right. It's not going to be the first one. 
it's going to be a series of cases. And I'm hopeful that uh, that the decision will be one of such as there's, there's no confusion. I think, in my view, members of the court were looking for a way to, to properly put restrictions uh, on on their release of restrictions and allow people to carry outside of the home. It just seemed to me from time to time, they're just trying to figure out where they're going to draw the line and where, where are they going to say, well, you can't carry in this situation and still make it constitutional. Again, I have a problem with just because there's a lot of people around doesn't mean that anybody's any more dangerous and certainly doesn't mean that you don't need a gun. Uh, I mean, it's quite the opposite. But again, you know, facts be damned in most of these cases because factually they're all losers and so they, they can't argue the facts. Well, Sean, the other topic I wanted to discuss, and this is something that broke in the news a little while back, we had sued the city of Cincinnati, also Columbus, but the story that came out was about the Cincinnati case. They lost the lawsuit mm. and our foundation got a check for $235,000, and this was about their bump stock ban. And the, the, honestly, the case was not ever about bump stocks per se. It was about preemption. Ohio Revised Code 9.68, which is commonly called preemption, that's not a legal term, but most people refer to it that way. It basically says cities cannot regulate firearms, their components, or ammunition. But that's what Cincinnati was trying to do and they lost the case. So, uh, Sean, just walk us through what happened in this case, because it was really drawn out. I mean, it started early in 2018. It really only concluded when we officially won this case and they wrote us a check. So it was about three years. How, how did all this come about? Well, if you can remember, I think either you called me or I called you and said, guess what Cincinnati just did? Because I happened to notice that, that they passed this and of course, uh, Ronald Lemieux and you and I all got together and we spoke. And the first thing that we did was we shot a letter off to the, the, the city solicitor and members of the council just to say, hey, uh, you violated preemption in the state of Ohio. And part of that is was we can sue you and you can pay, you'll have to pay our attorney's fees. So you better get rid of this ordinance. It's unconstitutional and it violates you know, preemption under Ohio law. You never got a response, sent another letter ignored, never got another response. And so based on that, we filed a lawsuit. And the day that I filed that, almost instantaneously, I met with uh, the city of Cincinnati people and we were in Judge Melba Marsh's uh, courtroom at that time. She was a judge that later had to recuse herself, you know, and we spoke and, and almost immediately I, I asked for a, 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 an injunction to enjoin the city of Cincinnati from enforcing their uh, bump stock ban, their trigger bans, and everything else that was involved in that piece of legislation. And they entered on the record that, uh, that they will not enforce it, they will not spend any money enforcing it, because the last thing they wanted was the judge to rule right now on a restraining order, because if, if he did that, really, the case was over. So that's what happened at the very first hearing. And then Judge Marsh's had a, had a uh, previous clerk, that clerk for her, that was now an attorney for the city of Cincinnati, and uh, which gave me the opportunity to, to, have, uh, to have her recuse herself. I didn't think she was going to be friendly towards our case. She's a fine, fine jurist, but I would just rather have uh, a, another judge that thought a little bit more like you and I. And boy, with Judge Ruhlman, we got a great judge uh, and everything that went along. And I think you probably have the time frame date by date. 
If you want to start going over that, then I can tell you exactly what happened in each one of those. Well, I mean, we filed the lawsuit in June, June 21st. And that was after we you know, tried to talk to them and we told them what was mm-hmm. going to happen, but they, they ignored us. It was July 24th, 2018, when we got the decision from the common pleas judge, Robert Ruhlman, and he issued mm-hmm. a temporary injunction. And then February 8th, 2019, Judge Ruhlman granted a motion for summary judgment and issued a permanent injunction, which forbade the city from enforcing that illegal ordinance. But then they appealed, right? So then they they were putting taxpayer money into it. And then, so they appealed. Now they're putting even more taxpayer money into it. Why wasn't that the end of it right there with that summary judgment? Well, there was a lot of a lot that occurred between the, the, the summary judgment and the permanent injunction. We had depositions. You were deposed. We had other people deposed. They, they spent money. I don't know how much money on an expert witness to try to come in and, uh, try to convince the world that uh, the stock wasn't a, wasn't part of a gun uh, and whatever their accessory argument was. And then they got to the point in time where they lost the first time and uh, then the injunction came out. And then the next thing we do is we have a hearing on attorney's fees. We argue attorney's fees. We win all the attorney's fees that, that we had a right to get. And they objected to that and had a hearing objecting to that. They filed their appeal with the First District Court of Appeals. All the paperwork that goes back and forth and everything went back and forth with that, had the oral arguments. The court came out. We won at that level. And they're still burning money. Don't forget, they're paying for Buckeye Firearms Association's expenses, and they're paying for their own attorneys, their expert witnesses, the fees, and everything else that were going along with there. And so then they decide to appeal to the Ohio Supreme Court. And what's interesting is there was never even an inkling that anything was done wrong at the court below in the common police court by Judge Ruhlman. Everything was done perfectly right. They just tried to argue the same thing, the same losing argument over and over again. And when they filed with the uh, uh, the Ohio Supreme Court, they refused to hear it. And so, and so that's when our, our victory was finally uh, etched in stone. And a couple other things that some people may or may not be aware of is Bloomberg was involved in this case. All the usual suspects were, were donating money, offering attorneys, and doing other things to keep to keep these going. And I think that's who came up with uh, the issue of, of, well, preemption doesn't say accessories. So that means accessories we can, we can regulate. Well, accessories aren't accessories. A, a, a trigger isn't an accessory. A stock isn't, isn't an accessory. So we moved on beyond that. But that was your argument, and, and I think it was uh, it was another case of Buckeye Farms beating Bloomberg coming into Ohio, and of course trying to straighten out the city of Cincinnati, who, as you probably heard, have, have had their own problems since then. I believe uh, every member of the city council has been voted out this last election, and the vast majority of them are under federal indictment for a number of different crimes in office. Yeah, well, you live down there, so you probably know more about this than, mm-hmm. than I do, but you know, I've read. Uh, just a few articles, and, and at least half of the city council members have been charged with federal crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they call Chicago the most corrupt city in the country. Cincinnati is kind of like our Chicago, right? Like Chicago, Ohio. That's Cincinnati. No offense to anyone who lives in Cincinnati, but the city council there is corrupt. And the main guy behind all this was that P.G. Sittenfeld, mm-hmm. uh, who really is kind of a a media hound, you know, he likes to do anything to call attention to himself. 
He was the one really pushing the whole bump stock thing. He was told by other city council members, look, this is illegal. You shouldn't do it. He's now indicted on charges of wire fraud, bribery, attempted extortion. So, you know, this was all political. This was all for show. They knew that they were going to lose, I think, but they did it anyway. Yeah, they try to sensationalize on the tragedy in Las Vegas where the only time that I know that a, that a bump stock was used, and that's what they use as an excuse to be drafting this ordinance. And he pushed that because, again, he wanted to be on the media, and he got plenty of play, plenty of theatrics in the council meetings and outside of the council meetings and also outside the steps of, of the courthouse. You know, after hearings, he always commanded his audience outside of the steps there. We never had a comment, but, uh, but he couldn't shut up. So luckily we, um, we won and, and it, w- it was the right thing to do was to sue. And unfortunately, uh, the, the, the people who live in the city of Cincinnati, they had to spend quite a bit of money. I, I think probably estimates are close to $600,000 by the time you get all the cost, our attorney's fees plus their attorney's fees and what they paid. And, that's a, and, and, the, and the fact is that they didn't learn their lesson. They'll do it again. And uh, it'll be a different set of characters, but for some reason, it seems to be something that's pretty consistently done in the city of Cincinnati. So I guess we have to stay tuned and, and we'll have to be vigilant and, and make sure we're ready for the, for the next step. Sean, do you think cities are ever going to learn? Because we've sued Cincinnati. We sued Columbus over essentially the same thing. We won that one as well. We've sued Cleveland in the past. Lots of other cities have been sued for various things, they've all lost. Are, are cities going to learn or are we just going to have to keep suing people? I think we're going to have to probably keep suing people. Unfortunately, the teeth in the preemption law is attorney's fees. But when the people who are responsible for generating these attorney's fees don't ever have to pay the bill and it comes from that endless pit of taxpayer money, they'll keep doing it. Uh, they'll keep violating laws. They'll keep violating preemption, they'll keep getting sued and they'll keep losing. And it's not going to be finally until the, the voter says, hey, wait a minute, or the taxpayer says, wait a minute. And Judge Ruhlman wasn't happy at all with the city of Cincinnati. In fact, he had, there were several terse discussions that he had. Why are you wasting the taxpayer's money? Because he had just had a similar go around with Cincinnati shortly before we filed our suit where Cincinnati had to pay another another huge legal bill for doing something they never should have been doing and they knew it. Well, and I've also read, isn't there a big deficit in the city of Cincinnati? I mean, they're, they're not managing their money very well down there anyway. So they're spending more than they're taking in. No, and it, that's always been a problem with, with the Cincinnati. And it was like they're, um, I don't know if you know of our trolley car. The trolley car costs hundreds of millions of dollars. It's spent more time broken now since it's and then actually moving on the street. And what's amazing about Cincinnati's trolley car is that we as human beings can walk faster than a trolley car can move. So, <laughs> but it was part of a, a money that they got from the Obama administration. They got 20 million there and this was going to revitalize Cincinnati. And, and now this thing parked for trolley so, cars. The trolley cars. So, how yeah, many they, people? Now, how many people would ride the trolley cars? Because I'll say, where I am, I'm in a suburb, but Columbus buses come into our mm-hmm. area, and I swear I never see maybe one or two people. That's it. If there's a bu- there are bus stops all over in my area, and I might see one person occasionally waiting there. The buses are generally empty. When I've seen the trolley car dash by me, 
I've noticed that <laughs> there's hardly anybody on it. But what's even more interesting is where the trolley car goes. Essentially, it goes from downtown around the courthouse up to over the Rhine. Well, where it's going is one of the most dangerous parts of the city of Cincinnati, over the Rhine, where consistently the homicides occur. So you're putting people on a vehicle that hardly moves and you're taking them through a shooting gallery oftentimes with no walls and no glass. So that's Cincinnati for you. And, and they do have a hard time paying their debts and their bills and, uh, and to waste money on this preemption lawsuit really makes no sense whatsoever. But uh, unfortunately, it's going to be it's going to be done all over again. Well, thanks for all the legal insights, Sean. I look forward to having you back on the podcast. Enjoy your weekend, but don't sleep outside. Sleep inside. Keep keep your head, keep that bald head inside, Sean. Okay. Either I got to get a little beanie, wear a hat. Yep. I think that'd be a good look for you. So uh, again, look forward to having you back on the podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Look forward to Dean. Nice talking to you. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.